Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Climate Resilience in the Electrified Future. The frequency and severity of climate-related events are increasing, along with the associated costs and risks. As we shift more of our economy to run on the electric grid as part of the move to electrify everything, prioritizing resilience of our homes, communities, and the grid itself is imperative. Beyond efforts to harden the grid and properly weatherize our buildings, we can take advantage of ever-expanding technological capabilities, such as enabling grid interactive services of electric appliances and vehicles, demand response, distributed solar, and energy storage, all of which can help enhance our collective resilience. But what steps should we be taking to prioritize resilience? What's the role of distributed energy resources in making communities and people more resilient as they electrify? And what's really needed to amplify our collective climate resilience as part of an electrified future? With me today to help answer some of these questions are two esteemed colleagues. First, we have Carl Rabago, principal with Rabago Energy. Carl is a nationally recognized leader and innovator in electricity and energy law policy and regulation. Carl has over 30 years of energy-related experiences wearing many hats along the way, notably serving as vice president for distributed energy resources with Austin Energy, serving as a public utility commissioner in Texas, and an assistant law professor for the U.S. Military Academy. Carl is a well-known thought leader and practice expert in utility sector transformation. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be on with you. Well, it's great to have you and good to reconnect after many years. I've known Carl for quite some time. Next with me today, I have Jonathan Munkin, or John, principal at Converge Strategies, a consulting company with a focus on the intersection of clean energy, resilience, and national security. John works with a broad range of state and local governments, private sector, and military partners. He brings 18 years of experience developing solutions around the advancement of whole community security and resilience. John recently served as a Senior Director of System Resilience and Strategic Coordination for PJM Interconnection, and he's also a major in the U.S. Army. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sarah. Just excited for the conversation, so I appreciate the invitation. Well, I am as well. This is a a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, And I'll also both note, as I flagged in the bios I read, that you have both served in the U.S. military and hold and have held leadership positions. And uh, I'm a daughter of a U- U.S. Army veteran, so thanks for your service. And uh, <laughs> really great to, to have you both on the show today. So I'm going to start with a little bit of level setting and helping us better understand when we say the term resilience, what we're really referring to and what it means. So Carl, I'll start with you. How do you define resilience? Well, you know, I was thinking about it, and um, it, it seems to me the definition of resilience is actually pretty easy. It's just the ability to ride through and come back just as strong, if not stronger. And, you know, um, all sorts of things can demand resilience, the challenges of life during a pandemic, an electrical outage, all sorts of things. But the real challenge is in how, right? How do we achieve it? 
And increasingly, I think we recognize that resilience is something that should be measured by fairness and by cost and by benefits, who gets and pays, um, by how we choose the best path towards resilience, uh, the, the, the pathways with the most mutually reinforcing benefits. Um, in simple words, how do you get the best bang for your buck when you're investing in resilience? And how do you honor any of the deprivations or suffering that you may have to endure uh, in order to get through those events? So um, easy definition, just ride it through and come back just as strong, if not stronger. The devil's in the details. (laughs) I like that. And a very clear, concise definition. John, how about you? How do you define resilience? Well, I think one of the main reasons the question is so appropriate is because I think there is a whole lot of energy directed towards trying to come up with this perfect definition of resilience. And essentially, I think it does a disservice to the task in front of us, which is really pursuing things that we know to be inherently resilient, even if we don't have a ready-to-go Webster's Dictionary definition of the term. And what I really like about the path that we're on right now is that, to me, the fundamental difference when it comes to resilience as compared to things like reliability that the electricity industry has long since been measured against as a standard is that it's not about batting a thousand. It's not about the uninterrupted flow of electricity 100% of the time. It's really about understanding the fact that there are circumstances beyond your control that can force outages, that can disrupt the system. And resilience is really about your elasticity about being able to bounce back and and what that really means. So how can you mitigate the total consequences of an event to an acceptable level and then making sure that you can restore services where it's needed the most in a timely fashion that limits both the economic impact and the impact on individuals that are being serviced by those life support infrastructure systems. John is making an excellent point and, I'll just throw out one little bit of data because I've been thinking a lot about this Texas stuff, having spent some time there. All the headlines are about the $50 billion in increased costs for the electricity. But at the same time that that event was going on, the system shed 20 gigawatts worth of load, 20 gigawatts worth of people, some of whom, a very few, I'm sure, were large industrial customers, for example, that got paid to shed their load but a huge amount of which did not get paid. They just got told, hey, sorry, we're going to have to reduce usage. That amount, 20 gigawatts at $9,000 a megawatt hour, is $13 billion in cost that I have not seen. Some people call it value of lost load, perhaps, but that I have not seen discussed in any news stories since it happened. That's That's a resilience, if you will, that's a resilience payment. You know, it's just sort of people voluntarily, customers voluntarily gave up $13 billion in value to help keep the lights on in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need a, we need a, we need that bigger systems view in order to really do a good job assessing how we're going to maintain resilience in our electric and energy. Yeah, really, really excellent point. And I would say they were actually voluntold that they would give that value up. <laughs> In some cases, it was not as not as much a voluntary act, uh, but they were uh, not given much choice. 
Um, both really excellent definitions and excellent points. Uh, a lot to to unpack there. Um, I think you know, for me, uh, if I'm going to answer one of my own questions, you've you've both used the term bounce back, and I've always uh, relied on that as my core de- core component of the definition of resilience. Is yes, the ability to uh, withstand events that arise and hopefully. Uh, get back online, get back to quote-unquote normal as quickly as possible. Um, But I also think there's a lot within resilience that gets conflated with this notion of reliability, which you pointed to, John, which, uh, you know, in the energy world, both terms actually are very distinct and important to keep separate because otherwise uh, we may... We may not fully understand what it means to become more resilient if we're always focused on this reliability concept. So I want to I want to transition because of course this is a, a a podcast about electrification, and it's front of mind to a lot of people, myself being one of them, that as we move to electrify everything and recognizing it is a key pathway to decarbonize the economy, we have to do it. We have to do it relatively quickly. And we have to keep cleaning up the grid as we do it, ensuring reliability along the way. But how do we really ensure resilience on the path to electrification? And where should we really start? Um, what should we prioritize in the near term that might require a little bit longer to uh, scale? Carl, you want to jump in with your thoughts? Well, um, the first thing I think we have to do is sort of shed the electrical equivalent and energy equivalent of privilege assumptions, right? Um, we, if, if, if a parameter of electrification is that it also enhances resilience, and I think that's a reasonable expectation, then we have to, we have to leave ourselves open to finding the best way and the best provider of both the electrification benefits and the resilience that goes along with it. And when I worked at Rocky Mountain Institute, we had the saying, best buys go first, right? And Rocky Mountain Institute was a place that's still famous for doing really great analysis and taking a systems perspective to figure out exactly what the best buys are. I'm really pleased to say that I think in the industry in general today, we are doing, a lot more of us are doing that. We're looking to cost-effectiveness evaluation, both at a macro scale, an uh, example we could talk about if, you, if we have time on the local solar for all modeling of the entire continental United States with fine-grained uh, analysis that identifies DER opportunities, distributed energy resources opportunities, but also at the fine grain for programs and measures using uh, best practices uh, in in benefit cost analysis that we've that we've now articulated in the national standard practice manual. So so the short answer is how do we prioritize and should we prioritize it? Well, yes. First thing we should do is remove limiting assumptions like who's going to provide it. Second, we need to figure out where those best buys are and prioritize against what comprehensive cost of uh, effectiveness evaluation shows us. Yeah, so I like where that train of thought goes because I think essentially one of the biggest encumbrances to getting a lot of this done is that it's happening right now at a scale that is not consistent with the level of progress that we want to make in terms of achieving some of these resilience outcomes as we're going through the electrification process of more things. And at the same time, while this is happening, it's it's 
always going to be an example of it is less costly to build it in at the front end than it is to retrofit a system after the fact to try and achieve this additional benefit. And I think that was one of the examples that we saw in early deployment of renewable technologies is that the technology for things like battery storage that tend to be an essential element of achieving these resilience benefits in conjunction with the deployment of clean energy technology, it just wasn't there. It wasn't, it wasn't available from a technology perspective to the degree that it was really needed to achieve some of those outcomes. And so what we really can and should do at, at this stage of development is understand that if we have these types of priorities and these priorities are rooted in the type of community resilience outcomes that we're looking for, which is understanding that there are differences to the community as to the relative benefit of maintaining the electrification of a water purification facility as compared to a hospital, if we understand how those things impact communities and what value, inherent value, those services ultimately have to a community, it really helps us kind of rack and stack where these priorities are when we're looking to deploy these additional resources or we're looking to instill these these new technologies to achieve that particular outcome. And so I think that's the opportunity that we have in front of us. What we don't want is, you know, it's it's done on an ad hoc basis. It's done in a compartmentalized fashion that doesn't recognize how these system interdependencies could better be better supported from a resilient standpoint if we just make small changes to either the technical configuration, the siting, the sizing, and the deployment of these technologies it would be a huge opportunity missed that ultimately would prove much more costly either from the perspective of exactly what Carl said about $13 billion to Texas, or if we're talking about what it means for the, the actual cost benefit analysis at the tail end of this and saying that, well, a lot of the benefit was ultimately either lost or delayed because we just didn't think about it at the front end. I'll give you a, another example just to add to this, but, um, when I was at Austin Energy, we worked with this company called Converge. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them, but um, that was a joke, uh, John with Converge. <laughs> but we, um, as the vice president for distributed energy resources, we had, I think, about 95,000 of our customers' thermostats under our control. We were able to cycle them and get 25 megawatts of load in a 15, at that time, 1,500 megawatt system, which is a pretty good little cut. We also figured out um, that if we wanted to pull them all down, we could take 100 megawatts of load off the system. And uh, that could be extremely valuable in the case of an emergency. It could, it could allow you to meet a requirement for load shedding, for example, through a system that was already in place. It was great. It's, it, this was back over 10 years ago. Uh, they now offer rebates, and they're getting even more customers to bring in programmable and responsive thermostats. Um, so they they built on it. In answer to your question, Sarah, about what does it take to gather buy-in, though, I want to make a point. First of all, it takes persistence, right? You have to consistently demonstrate that this is a theme and a priority for the utility or for whoever's running the program. It It takes sort of um, the willingness to be open to value that you did not originally assume. While we never would have planned to take every thermostat that we had control of down, it was nice to know we had it as a backup resource. And then the really fun story was that 
we created such, because we did it at such a large scale, and again, with the help of contractors like Converge, we actually created a cultural expectation in Austin that everybody or everybody that could be was involved. We found out that when we just wanted to get voluntary load reducers into a network sharing an email or a cell phone so we could alert them to times when we might ask them to share in reducing the burden, we got tens of thousands of responses from customers who said that they wanted to find additional ways and to be tuned into the effort of responding when there was a need. So buy-in is about showing consistency and about reaching to everyone and about giving everybody a chance to participate in a community spirit of resilience as well. Yeah, really great example. And, uh, Great to hear you were so far ahead of the times 10 years ago when, uh, you know, this was, I think we've seen a lot more extreme weather events. We've seen a lot more stresses on various systems. And, you know, even just 10 years ago, that was beginning. But now I feel like it's really front of mind for most people. Um, and one of the things I always think about is this this conversation around trade-offs is something I think we need to elevate as part of the broader resilience conversation. Because what you guys have flagged as examples and what we've started to talk about is really being honest with ourselves and with consumers writ large about what we're actually talking about. You know, we may pay more upfront, but we're going to avoid this cost down the road. We may need to cycle your thermostat for a handful of minutes or an hour, but we're going to avoid you being out of power for five hours, six hours. But we, I think we have to start being a lot more honest about costs and the benefits. Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to that conversation because essentially in the absence of that conversation, what you have is a set of conditions where we find ourselves right now, which is generally speaking, I think, just as you said, people expect to have it all, all the time. And I think essentially, if you frame the context of this conversation around saying, look, there are going to be sets of conditions or circumstances that that are beyond the ability of the system to ride through without any disruptions at all. And, that, and I think that's relatable. When you talk to people about wildfires, you talk to people about polar vortexes and hurricanes, and you talk about these extreme conditions, these climate-based conditions that can really change the narrative about what deliverability of these services ultimately looks like, I think people will start to understand that there are differences there, but there are also things that can be done individually to try and support this, this greater effort. And I think there's a, there's a precedent. If we look at people who have expressed a willingness to pay for clean energy have been able to do that, right? They can add a little bit more to the utility bill with the assurance that the energy that their home is receiving in the aggregate is coming from clean energy sources. I think there's a greater understanding of what that means. And the sacrifice, I think, is generally less than people would normally assume, both from a cost perspective, if you're looking at what your utility rates are, or if you're looking at a handing over a resource like that control of the thermostat, or if you're talking about electric vehicles and you're saying, okay, well, imagine a set of circumstances where you know the capacity resource of, a, of the battery in an electric vehicle can be used by the distribution operator as a demand response asset, the agreement is don't drive your car for a couple of hours. And, you know, those types of things can be done where it's, it's a trade-off that's not necessarily coming as a, I need this money. 
uh, you're really saying that there are small changes in consumer behavior that can have huge impacts and huge benefits when we talk about resilience value. This is a, this is, it, this is a tough one because at some extreme point, there are trade-offs and you have to make tough decisions. I don't think anybody actually believes that they're guaranteed everything. Goodness knows it's a tough world out there anyway. So, you know, when you get over the sort of the sound bite, oh, we got to keep the grid up no matter what, you realize, okay, well, there's going to be a shared measure of pain, and most people do go along with it. The real question then becomes not sort of trade-offs, but sort of optimization. How do I get the most amount of this and the most amount of that? How do I get an essential level of comfort, safety, and protection, but at the same time, maybe I can do a little without, right? There's a lot of, one of the ideas being thrown around after the Texas, you know, meltdown and the high temperatures, I mean, the high demand for gas that was felt in a whole bunch of the country was, geez, if everybody could reduce their electricity demand or their gas demand by 10%, wouldn't that pretty much address the problem? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. So how do you get to everybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, and it, so the answer, what's, what's really interesting about this is it's sort of the same thing that poses the challenge, our dependency on gas and electric for essential business and home services also has some of the keys to the solution. It's an, this is, these are technologies that are extremely amenable to digitalization, to control with smart computers and with, with intelligent systems. So there is a way in which we can design, build, and operate these essential systems in ways that is uh, more resilient, <laughs> that allows you to ride through the problems mm-hmm. and possibly even come back stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's pivot to some of those examples. Uh, what can communities and individuals be doing to improve their resilience, uh, take control a little bit more of, of their fate, so to speak, in the face of more extreme weather and natural disasters? John, I'll, I'll let you kick this off. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, what's interesting is as, as an emergency management professional in, in one of my previous lives, I think one of the biggest challenges that we run into with great regularity is that I think the, there's a failure of imagination on the part of individuals when it comes to how real the risk is to them individually until the event happens. And so I think the circumstances we find ourselves in right now is that you would be hard pressed to find a region of the country that has not had a very real and relatively recent experience with what a failure of energy resilience ultimately looks like and how it affects their lives individually, how it affects our communities holistically. And so to that end, I think we need to be able to capture that conversation and direct it in a productive way that really tries to articulate what people can do to individually support themselves. And and one of the challenges of emergency management has always been, okay, well, the the guidance is that people need to be capable of self-sustaining from a perspective of food, potable water, and prescription medications for a period of 72 hours. That's the guidance that was always pushed at the state level, at the federal level, to basically reiterate the fact that, you know, the cavalry that's, that's coming to support in a disaster, there's, there's a ramp time there. It, just, it takes time to mobilize resources. And 
increasing individual preparedness and individual resilience to that degree takes enormous pressure off of the collective system, recognizing that you can address the most vulnerable populations first then because you're not trying to deal with the volume game that comes with so many people that were unprepared for that event. And so from an energy perspective, I think understanding how consumption affects the availability of that type of service, I think is a huge driver here and an underutilized message right now of trying to understand what that means. And I think when you look at a Texas example and you understand that as a state, they're very unique in that 75% of home heating in the state comes from electricity, which is rare. That's not typically the case. In most states, natural gas is the primary fuel source for home heating. There could have been a lot of messaging, and there was some last-minute messaging on the 13th of February about trying to reduce consumption, but that's not a fundamental change in behavior. That's a, a single event guidance that's being provided. I think that's a great example of how people can or should understand that if you are in a circumstance that these infrastructure systems are expecting these kind of suboptimal conditions that they're going to have to operate through, you know how to translate that into individual behavior in a way that's beneficial to the system at large. Mm -hmm. And it, it comes with challenges because the grid operators need to be part of that. I still remember at TJM, we had a very, very unusual thing happen, which is uh, back in 2017, when there was the total eclipse, we were trying to forecast load and there's not historical precedent within our operating territory of what happens when there's a, a total eclipse and how that impacts the availability of solar, consumer behavior and demand at the time. And essentially the, the load forecast was inaccurate by a margin that's much larger than what is typical of a normal day. In this case, about 5,000 megawatts, which is a big chunk. Mm -hmm. And so and, and, the... And, and it's yeah. absolutely mind boggling to me because we can predict eclipses thousands of years out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and I think, it, it, yeah. and in this case, it's just, we, we haven't had an eclipse with the amount of renewables that exist on rooftops you know, in the year 2017. And with, you know, trying to understand how that would impact, you know, resource availability and, and demand on the system. And it turns out that one of those chunks of load of almost 900 megawatts worth was actually the result of a voluntary promotion by Nest thermostats to encourage their customers to conserve electricity because of the eclipse, recognizing that there would be a lot of solar resources offline. That just wasn't communicated to the grid operator. Yep. <laughs> so yep. they didn't yeah. know that was going to happen. And then you've got uh, over procurement of resources, you've got wasted assets on the system, uh, but it, it shows the power of behavior. Fascinating. Wow. I yep. You know, I, I, my uh, two big thoughts are going through my head. One is I was just on a, a call discussing the way in which the utility in New Orleans was supposed to reduce load uh, during Mardi Gras, they're calling it the Mardi Gras outage there, the, um, by 25 megawatts, but they say they accidentally reduced it by 100 megawatts, um, spreading a lot more inconvenience and suffering than was necessary. But part of their response was, well, we tried asking everyone to voluntarily reduce load, but nobody answered, so we had to impose a cutoff. Then we accidentally cut off more than we needed. And so that old um, saying of the meaning of your message is the response you receive is what popped 
pops into my head. Mm. You do have to create, again, this expectation, this cultural expectation that we can all contribute in addressing these issues. And it takes long time. It takes consistency. It takes integrity and honesty in that communication. But the second part of it, and this is getting to what John was saying, is it reminded me in the, in the military, there's this old thing called the five-paragraph order, which is how you organize yourself for a mission. And number one is always situation. You understand where you stand. Um, lately, I've been giving a lot of thought to the fact that communities and utilities that serve communities need to be doing some pretty honest self-assessment mm -hmm. about where they stand in the light of these kinds of events. Not just, oh my gosh, it was bigger than we ever thought, but okay, this could happen again. And are we organized for it? Are we ready for it? What tools are at our disposal? Who are our allies? Where do our risks come from? All those basic questions need to be asked. I think a lot of self-examination and, you know, management and capacity auditing mm -hmm. should flow from this in order to do real honor during those, you know, 72 hours and beyond, as John mentioned. So I was going to say, I, I really like that because it also identifies the fact that within a community, within a particular jurisdiction, it's not always immediately known that there's, there's these inherent priorities, right? Say, oh, well, hospitals are very important and, and nursing homes are very important and so are police stations and so are fire stations and so are water treatment facilities and so, and so on and so forth. And then you get into this situation where if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. Mm -hmm. And I think the next step, the next iteration in this evolvement that we're really, this evolution that we're going through is recognizing the fact that you have the function of those particular facilities, but then you also have this, this behavioral component that we were referring to earlier saying, okay, yes, you have the functionality of that particular facility, but let's understand two important things. One is what are the other dependencies of that facility? So if you take a hospital, for example, and Texas saw this, you could have a hospital without power that can still operate. But if that hospital doesn't have access to potable water, mm -hmm. it cannot operate. Mm -hmm. They have to evacuate the facility because they can't treat people without potable water. Mm -hmm. And another example is what are the, 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 the actual functions of that facility, the subset of tasks or, or critical functions at a facility that must be supported? Because it's not the total load of the building that's needed, right? right? It's, it's not about having power to do everything. It's about saying, what are the things that are being done inside of this facility and what are the corresponding load requirements? And now we can understand how all of these facilities, no matter how important they are, they can also reduce their intake, their load, instead of a hospital saying, well, we're, we're the most important thing, so we're never, we're never going to come off of the system or we're never going to change what behavior looks like. Mm -hmm. Ideally, if you can articulate these requirements and these tasks mm -hmm. and corresponding loads with it, their change in behavior can ultimately support other infrastructure assets or facilities that in turn will ensure that they can continue their own operation. And I think that's that's a game changer. Yeah, really, really good point. Um, I have so many thoughts, and one of them is I've heard you both articulate the need to really embed this as a practice, that if we are trying to execute when we absolutely have zero bandwidth uh, and we're at our most vulnerable state, we're too late. We need to start uh, really proactively planning for resilience, embedding the practices and, and, and behavior changes that need to occur when big events happen, and really understand 
our individual role in the context of the system and how our individual actions can really make a difference and contribute to not just uh, minimizing worst-case scenarios, but also helping the most vulnerable get back online and avoid uh, really devastating situations. Um, So it sounds like there's a lot more to be done in this space, and it's up to all of us to elevate it as a collective priority and not just give it lip service. Um, I want to shift to ask about distributed energy resources, solar, energy storage, portable energy. What is the role of these distributed resources, DERs, in the context of electrification and resilience? Carl, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right question to be asking in this context of of sector transformation and response. And of course, the answers are really big, right? So we've known for some time that our big grid, while it has been efficient and effective in electrifying sort of the nation on a macro scale, is increasingly brittle. That's, you know, that's just, it's subject to, it's a, it's, it's subject to one bad hit in the wrong place. Everyone understands the risk of cascading failure and how far backward we have to bend to avoid that because, you know, let's not forget they were describing that if ERCOT had gone down in Texas, it could have taken months. That would be months without electricity and months without water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Small solutions might well help us, and there's really exciting new insight. I mentioned before this local solar for all modeling we've been doing, um, and I say we, I do some work with the Coalition for Community Solar Access, the business association that works on community solar uh, business around the country. So very much part of that DER conversation, and we hired a guy out of Boulder and his team at Vibrant Clean Energy. The gentleman's name is Dr. Christopher Clack to run an exciting new model called Wisdom on the Grid. What's exciting about it is that it runs utility-scale modeling functions, but it does it as a res- at a resolution that is down to three square kilometers, five minutes, and one kilowatt. So you have this, it's like having, you know, not just the Hubble spacecraft uh, telescope, but going all the way to the Webb telescope and being able to see everything in great detail. And with that as a preamble, here's the answer to the question about DERs. The modeling is showing a really powerful emergent behavior when you optimize and coordinate distributed energy resources in order to meet the demand for electricity. What it does is it recognizes the ability for distributed energy resources, and this is exactly what John was just describing, to shape the load that the utility sees. So rather than just assuming the load as a static function, the shape of a curve on a line, it actually can deploy distributed resources in a way that takes better advantages, better advantage of the resources, the large-scale resources that are running. One of the things we learned in Texas and across much of the central United States during this severe weather was wind and solar performed pretty much as expected. And that's the coin of the realm during a disaster or an emergency. It's who performs as you expect them, who brings what they said they'd bring Mm -hmm. to the challenge. Wind and solar did that. 
So if you could take better advantage of the, the good performing resources, wind and solar, you can actually reduce the impact of the emergency. And distributed energy resources, if we rely on them more, can not only satisfy the need locally, but like I said, shape that demand. Everybody's seen the traditional load curve, right? Everybody says, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about those very expensive hours of peak demand when, you know, like I said, when electricity is very expensive? Everybody's chasing that. Uh, it's like everybody is chasing that. Demand response is chasing that. Electric vehicles are chasing that. Solar is chasing that. Storage is chasing that. But what we learned is that when you really take full advantage of distributed energy resources, you can actually reduce costs across 80% of the load curve, meaning you get system-wide benefits because, again, you're taking optimal advantage of all your resources. So um, DERs, I think, are not – it's not a binomial choice, distributed versus utility scale – what it is is being really smart, which now we finally can do, about taking advantage of those resources that are sited at or near the place where the load is appearing. Ooh, that was long. Sorry about that. No, that no. was great. That- <laughs> no, long, but I think right on, yeah. right on point. I mean, I, I, I think it's the, the, the yin and yang is what needs to be appreciated here is that there's recognition that there's a role for both, right? The economies of scale and efficiencies recognized by the the big grid approach to it has a place to offset the costs of doing these increased deployments of DERs and recognizes that there's a a significant role and an important one to play for a better co-location of capacity and load. And I think when you have a circumstance, take Puerto Rico in 2017 as an example, where the vast majority of the capacity was on the south coast of the island and the vast majority of load is on the north coast of the island, when that big grid system is completely unavailable because of the catastrophic damage to infrastructure, you realize immediately that you are in a long-term restoration event. You're not talking you know, hours and days, you're talking weeks and months. And so understanding that there is a vital role to play with this co-located generation to where it's needed the most with all these priorities that we talked about, these, these community facilities, these public safety facilities, these essential infrastructure assets that need to be supported. There is a very, very clear role to play. And, you know, these, these renewable resources, these DERs that can be brought to bear in these circumstances become even more valuable because you realize that you have more than one option. And so essentially, if you can really align those things to, to support each other in a meaningful way, and not in an ad hoc way either, where you have a DER that, that there's no visibility by the grid operator. They, they don't have the ability to access it for all these types of ancillary services and demand response. That's one of those things that you, you want to avoid that cir- circumstance as well, where it's just a, it's an isolated asset that doesn't have the ability to, to provide a greater benefit to the larger system at the same time. I want to pile on one thing you said there, John, which is really important about considering all your options. This is a lot of this is about asking better questions. The traditional way we approach the electric utility and energy systems is that we ask, you know, from a very narrow set of large scale resources that are favored and understood by the incumbents, we ask which of those would you use? 
And then we ask, what are we forced to use by the policymakers, you know, through net metering or community solar initiatives or whatever? We need to ask the better question. We need to be able to ask a new computational power and, and understanding of distributed resources enables to ask the questions like, for this next increment of load, what is the best thing taking into account not just the performance of the resource, but the infrastructure associated with serving it and the reliability and the cost and the congestion on that infrastructure, much more complicated questions, but that give us much more, uh, you know, um, just precise answers mm-hmm. and more, much more elegant answers to what's the economically efficient path. That's what we get if we take advantage of distributed energy resources in our planning. Absolutely. The the tools we've been using to plan the grid, operate the grid, uh, even plan our own energy preparedness at a business or, or individual level may not be sophisticated enough for us to make those more informed decisions. So it sounds to me like we've got to do a better job of also making sure the tools are fit for the job. And the analysis you mentioned, Carl, sounds like a, a really good step in the right direction. And I personally would love us to to get away from these rather tedious net metering battles. I feel like they distract from so many other bigger issues and, and bigger problems to solve. And, and frankly, you know, if we're thinking holistically about equity and equitable distribution of both opportunity to benefit from distributed resources and rely on them, uh, we can't continue to make them more expensive over time. We have to make them less expensive and uh, creating policies that compensate people for adopting them and then being able to use them as grid services is the best way to do that. So that should be the the problem-solving exercise, not the uh, the long long battle between um, incumbents and and new technologies. But that's my soapbox. <laughs> um, you guys are so smart. You have so many great ideas, and frankly, I could probably have this conversation for another two hours. Uh, we are winding down on time, but I do have a, a, just a couple more questions. We obviously have a new administration, and uh, the federal government, of course, plays some role in this overarching resilience conversation. And particularly, I'm, I'm interested in kind of honing in on some of the opportunities for federal government operations and the military to continue and or amplify their leadership on the topic of, of energy resilience and John, I know you've done quite a bit of work in this space. Um, so what are your thoughts? What can the Biden administration do to ensure resilience, in particular climate resilience, is better integrated into federal government and military operations? Well, I think one of the biggest advantages that the administration has when they look at how the military can really serve as a microcosm to the larger challenges associated with climate resilience is that it is the single largest ratepayer in the United States is the collective energy requirements of the Department of Defense. So they have a whole lot of heft when it comes to how they interact with the electricity industry. And then they also have a very, very specific and finite list of mission capabilities that must be sustained to achieve a community benefit, which is national, national security, in a very, very real way, in a way that can be measured, it can be quantified, it can be articulated. And that in and of itself is an enormously powerful tool 
to really cut through the squishy conversations around, well, what's important? Is this, is this a priority? Is this not a priority? How, how does this play out? The military has the, the ability and already the data to identify exactly what is important, what functions matter, where they're located, what their energy loads really are. And that in and of itself is incredibly valuable because it, it really puts it in a context that's digestible in a number of different ways that can be translated into everything from federal regulatory guidance on this particular subject into things that can be translated at the state level for state utility commissions and utilities themselves as they're really attempting to try and define what these requirements really are. And there are certainly, there's certainly precedent within the utility sector when you look at things like Blackstart, which is already a, uh, I would say it's the closest thing to procured resilience on the system because it's really designed to make sure that the, the, the bulk electric system itself can survive a significant event. When we talk about things like SIP 14, which is Critical Infrastructure Protection 14, is this unique class of bulk electric system components that have a disproportionate effect on the system if they were to be taken out or removed from the system, you can use this type of precedent and you can use the lens of the Department of Defense and national security, which everyone can essentially agree, yeah, that's an important thing. National security is kind of a big deal. And it's a, it's a, a tangible bridge issue between parties of saying we have to be able to align our climate goals with and energy resilience goals with the explicit needs of the Department of Defense. And if you can do it at that scale, you can accomplish it at all of these other areas that we're talking about. And I think DOD recognizes that. They, they list climate change as a threat to national security. They have a better understanding and a growing understanding of what climate resilience and energy resilience means to their concept of mission assurance, like making sure this function can happen, this national security mission can be supported. And I think it, it can function as a catalyst in a much broader sense of how we uh, really provide financial resources, regulatory incentives, or, or oversight and these types of things to achieve very tangible outcomes. So I'll, I'll chime in. I, I never had to serve in combat, but we did a lot of practice. And when I was first in the cavalry, um, Harvard Cavalry, I was a logistics officer. And I remember playing a map exercise uh, in a large sandy country uh, years before those wars actually happened, in which um, I kept saying, okay, the tanks are out of fuel, you know, and we can't, we don't have enough tankers to get fuel to them. And I, I ended up slowing down the operations. And so the response, I'll never forget, like two days into a major exercise with something called the Rapid Deployment Force, um, the call came in from headquarters that we were going to suspend logistical play. And that would allow the operation guys to keep moving the little toy tanks and stuff all around the map. <laughs> um, I was frustrated because I was a logistics guy and I wanted to take my work seriously of moving fuel around. We went to big sandy countries and had wars and found out that the fully burdened cost of fuel, of energy, in ex in meeting sort of military challenges can be quite high. And everybody knows mm -hmm. about the convoy stories in places uh, where we've been engaged. Mm -hmm. The Department of Defense 
learned a lot of lessons from that. They have a capacity, sometimes it's slow, but they have a capacity to really learn. And they learned that, you know, a big tank that gets three gallons per mile in terms of fuel usage needs a really long tail of logistical support. So it is with installations here in the United States, keeping a base up and training soldiers and airmen and Marines and sailors is it is an expensive energy proposition. So they've really stepped up to understand that, adopting net zero policies and putting in place top-notch facilities managers and deploying innovative technology, all things we could learn from in the civilian world. But one task remains to be done with the Department of Defense, with the assistant secretaries at the installation level, that the Biden administration should jump on is the recognition that the vast majority of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, um, Marines that are at these facilities don't actually live on the facilities. Most of these, most of them, I, you know, I spent 40 years in the military as a dependent or as a, in the army myself, I only lived on a military base twice. The rest of the time, I lived in the community, and many times it was in inefficient housing mm -hmm. subject to power outages. So even as we've turned our military installations into enclaves of, of innovation and resilience, we need to recognize that they reside within a community and that partnerships between the military and the local community can be beneficial not just for the community, but also beneficial ensuring that the military can get it, meet its missions. Um, and that kind of idea, by the way, can be extrapolated. Now we can start talking about the great work university campuses are doing mm -hmm. and how they can interact with the community where the professors and students are living and other kinds of opportunities. It's very much how do you make a microgrid work for the people outside the microgrid? And it's one of the places where I think we're DERs all the DERs can really shine. Great. Well, that yeah, sounds like a that sounds like a topic for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a fellow tanker, I, I can't help myself because uh, my first tour in Iraq with a, with a tank unit, we went through 1.1 million gallons hmm. of fuel, uh, even though we only had 32 tanks. So the average consumption was over yeah. 30,000 gallons per tank for a year when the average car in the United States is about 650 gallons of gas per year. So why, why didn't you... Yeah, why didn't you just suspend logistical play? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. I mean, you can imagine that we spent an inordinate amount of time just escorting fuel tankers mm -hmm. back and forth yeah. from the Kuwaiti border. Yeah. I mean, we spent an unbelievable amount of time trying to import all of this gas mm -hmm. to support security operations that were fundamentally designed to protect oil and energy assets. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, uh, you know, the, 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 crazy the irony circle. is not, it's not, yeah, the irony <laughs> is not gone. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that. Um, well, Carl and John, this has been a really excellent conversation. I want to, I want to finish on a, um, a positive note. Uh, what steps you're personally taking to be more resilient in your life? And Carl, I'll start with you. 
I, you know, the, I, I was thinking the first and most important thing I'm doing for my resilience, especially in the light of this ongoing pandemic, is trying to eat healthy and stay fit. <laughs> you know, try to make myself less vulnerable to surprises. And then we've been doing a fair amount of an energy play, uh, energy way in our home. We, we, we got this 100-year-old house weatherized for the first time in its life. Um, we, we've installed, um, efficient lighting everywhere and, uh, we've made it controllable, uh, a lot of our things. So we've, so we've, we've tried to make ourselves less dependent. And like I said, with health and fitness, we bought this really cool new tandem bicycle. Uh, both my wife and I are working on our personal resilience, no matter what things get thrown at us. Awesome. John, how about you? Well, I love that because I think the pandemic has taught us very unique lessons about how individual resilience can have community consequences. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the decisions that we're making within our own households have huge ramifications for our extended families, our extended network of friends, colleagues, and and our communities at large. So I wholeheartedly agree. We've definitely taken a, a healthy approach to how we're trying to just handle ourselves. And over the course of the pandemic, not that this was part of our original plan, but we ended up building a house during this time, a process that had been initiated prior to the pandemic, you know, descending on all of us and, and changing our lives in a number of different ways. And so the emphasis on what we could do for incremental cost to ensure increased efficiency of the home, everything from a, a, a two-zone climate control for the house to make sure that we don't have hot and cold spots throughout the house. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't overutilize energy uh, to paying the extra money to make sure that we have the top tier energy efficient windows, same thing with mm -hmm. appliances, all those kind of things. We were willing to bear the cost. And I think it ultimately proves out in terms of what our energy bill looks like on a regular basis, which is for double the square footage, we have an identical utility bill. We're, wow. we're literally paying the exact same amount in electricity for a house that's twice the size just because of those improvements. And so I think for us, that's that's made a substantial difference in, in yeah. just knowing that we're we're trying to take that type of demand off the system. Well done. Uh, well, I will answer the question as well. Um, so, right as the pandemic was uh, settling in and we were all homebound, um, Salt Lake City had a pretty sizable earthquake and. Literally, that shook me to the core. I was living alone, and it was sort of this smack in the face of like, okay, um, you need to really step up your game on this whole resilience factor. <laughs> so uh, I now am a proud owner of a 72-hour kit in my uh, in my shed with water and yeah. uh, hopefully enough to keep me, uh, you know, sustained for a handful of hours if ever, or days rather, if ever that happens again or if other things happen. Um, I also have purchased a, a really cool portable Goal Zero battery that um, I use not only um, in emergencies, but for camping. And uh, it's got a solar panel that goes with it that's portable, so I can throw it in the car or throw it on my bike and um, <laughs> get out of Dodge and have power. So those that's are my fantastic. two resilience steps. Um, there's a lot more I'd like to do, but for now, that's that's what I can do. So, um, well, thank you so much, Carl and John. This has been just a great conversation, and I wish we could do more of these and have more uh, more discussions about all of the topics we've touched on today, but really appreciate both of your time. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for asking such great questions. Absolutely, and really guiding a terrific discussion. 
Well, thanks. Um, and before I sign off, uh, I do want to mention that Energy Innovation is a community partner for Verge Electrify, which is a complimentary online event taking place May 25th and 26th. Uh, it's going to convene the Electrify Everything movement, and uh, they're planning on more than 5,000 leaders from pri- private and public sectors, utilities, solution providers, investors, and startups, all working to achieve rapid and, and widespread electrification across all sectors. So um, I will include a link to register for that event in the podcast page and notes, and uh, that will also be accompanied by links related to this show and our guest bios. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm. Our mission is to accelerate clean energy by promoting the most effective energy policies. We provide research and analysis for decision makers on what matters and what works to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review. Tag us on social, hashtag electrify this. And I want to give a shout out to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio in here in Salt Lake City, making us sound good for each episode. And with that, I will bid you all adieu until next month. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. 